Thanks for joining us on the Oasis Church Podcast. To find out more about Oasis, visit CelebrateTheJourney.org. During this episode, Pastor Dennis Ritchie shares a great message that will lead you to new and deeper levels with Jesus Christ. So open up a Bible, grab a notebook, or simply listen along. weird morning. We're going to have good miracles? Yes. If we get through this morning, it will be a miracle. Yes. Yes. <sighs> Father, we, we come before you with, um, with open, open hearts, open minds. We thank you that you have called us to this place uh, to follow Jesus. Would you please continue to strengthen us for this pursuit, for this journey that we're on? Uh, that we would not just keep Jesus for ourselves, but that we would share him with the world. And so thank you for this morning, for this community, and for uh, the grace that you continually pour out upon us. Lord, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. 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 Acts chapter 14, verses 27 and 28 say this. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is talking about Paul and Barnabas. They have finished their first um, missionary journey. They head back to Jerusalem and they're sharing everything that God has done. Uh, At this point, the Lord has swung the door wide open for the rest of the world to know and to follow Jesus. The grace of God is on display for the world, not only to see, but to, but to experience. Now this chapter 14 of the book of Acts in the life of, of Paul and Silas, this actually takes, um, it's about 10 years after Paul's conversion. And sometimes I think we miss those timelines. We miss those nuances of the scripture because we just feel like everything just happens boom, 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 right in order. Like um, Paul became, or Saul became Paul and he was, uh, had this amazing conversion experience and all of a sudden he was the next biggest thing in Christianity as sliced bread was to history. Though I don't think sliced bread was invented yet, but I, you get my point. But there, there's more that took place in this whole period of God preparing him and training him and teaching him and refining him. Remember, Paul has a very analytical, um, straightforward personality, and so I believe that God had to remove some of the, the sharpness and, and create in him who he was called to be. So through this whole experience with Paul and Barnabas, people are repenting, churches are being established, the power of God is, is evident through signs and wonders because we know the scripture tells us that, that God was giving power to Paul and Barnabas to put his power on display, that, that people were being healed from diseases. 
And this has a very dramatic effect on the powers of darkness. Because every step of the way, Satan, evil, the demonic, is trying to push back and stop the role of the church. We know that Paul and Barnabas have been kicked out, or they had to flee cities because of death threats, that they have been um, beaten. Even at one point, Satan tries to get people to worship Paul and Barnabas and really pull them off their game. But now we're going to see in chapter 15 that grace itself is coming under attack. The very thing that, that welcomes us into the kingdom of God, his grace is now going to be attacked. So chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch where they were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you do this extra thing, unless you add this on to grace, you cannot be saved. See, the tension here is these these Judaizers or what they're called, um, they're not denying the grace of God. They are not denying this unmerited favor. They're just adding to it. Grace plus circumcision is the way to be saved. Jesus plus circumcision is the only way that you can be saved. See, they're missing this idea of what grace is. Unmerited favor of God. Unmerited means that you can't behave your way into God's grace because it's a free gift through faith from him. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they take issue with this teaching, and and rightly so. And so they they gather and they have the first church meeting. And the first church meeting really has set the tone for every church meeting after that. There's a little bit of contention going to happen in there. And if you've never been to a church meeting, praise God. (laughs) I said that out loud, huh? Oops. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The question, again, is, is circumcision a requirement for salvation? The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, I'm sure that the initial um, conversation that Paul and Barnabas received from these uh, people from Jerusalem coming to Antioch, um, they, they probably, these people probably felt that they had a little weight behind them. They had a little pull, that they had the authority to come and to speak, that they had, this had to be added to the gospel in order for salvation to take place. 
Well, the two of them are not going to have anything of it. And so what they do is they say, we're going to head to Jerusalem and figure this out. And on the way there, they're just sharing what God has done. And they're sharing with the other believers. They're encouraging them that really the church is on the move, that, that people are repenting of their sin, uh, moving away from all of the polyistic and, and the paganism that the culture was uh, filled with. And they're looking to Jesus Christ. So they get there. They're greeted well. And the meeting starts, and those members of the Pharisees, now remember, these are not Pharisees in Judaism. These are Pharisees that belong to, the, to that elite group who now have converted to follow Jesus. They get up, and they uh, confirm that, yeah, these Gentile believers, they have to be circumcised, and they have, they're required to keep the law of Moses. And see, there's, there's this... The problem with this is that these men who are standing up and proclaiming this, they are not evil people. They are not trying to stop the church. They are not trying to pull people away from Jesus. These, these old Pharisees, they repented of their sin. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. They, are, they, they have received salvation, but they are adding something to the gospel. Remember that they would have probably have lost everything as far as the world is concerned. They lost their elite position as a Pharisee in society. They lost that prestige. They probably lost their finances. They were disowned probably by family and friends. And so it was a huge sacrifice for what they had done in converting to follow Jesus. And so it seems that for them... They've lost all of this. They're involved in this new way of approaching God. And it's, and it's difficult for them to break the old uh, ties to the old way, their old faith. And so they're telling the church, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Okay, Jesus, yes, but there needs to be something more to it. There needs to be the following of the law of Moses. There needs to be circumcision. You know, I, I think... I believe that all of us in some way, shape, or form, as we move through this life, we are influenced, or our faith is influenced or shaped by all of our yesterdays, all of the things in the past that we've experienced, whether they be outside of the church, um, but especially inside of the church. And we can, sometimes we allow those things that we have been taught that may or may, that may not be correct according to the Bible, um, distort our walk with Jesus. And so the, um, the challenge for us is to recognize those things, the, those little nuances that we may be off in our faith journey, recognize those things, press into them, go to, to, go to the Lord, pray about them, and then repair them so that we don't get pulled away from the path that Jesus has set before us. If you, if you study church history or even give it a casual reading, you will find that whenever something was added to faith, some type of um, law requirement, thing you had to do, when it was added to faith throughout church history, you will see that faith begins to take a back seat and that thing becomes the most important thing. Now, to these old Pharisees, circumcision in the law of Moses became the most important thing and not grace by faith. 
So from a theological perspective, the truth of the gospel is at stake. Along with the the relational aspect of the gospel. The wrong decision here by the elders and the apostles would, would slam the door on the grace of God and create this exclusiveness to the message that Jesus came and preached. But by God's grace, the correct decision about his grace was made. And it's given us the freedom today that we build this this, uh, beautiful thing we call grace into our theology, into our relationships, and into, into our church. So imagine there's, there's arguing and going on back and forth. And then Peter is going to stand up. I, I imagine he's chomping at the bit at one point, And he stands up and addresses them. He said, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter is talking about his experience years ago when he was called to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And while he's there, he just begins to share the gospel. And the Spirit of God comes upon them. They start to to speak in tongues. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were saved too. And God made no distinction. He doesn't make any distinction between Gentile and Jew. Jesus died for all. The grace of God is available to all. All that will call on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved and given the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter has hit this thing. He's hit the nail on the head, as Terrence said this morning. And he continues, he says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter is pointing out, listen guys, so throughout our entire history as Jews, we have not been able to keep the law of Moses. We have failed miserably. Why in the world are we going to put that yoke, that teaching on the Gentiles? Why are we going to make it hard for them to come to Christ? The law has always been there to turn people to Jesus, to bring to light that we can't get this done on our own. We need grace. We need his mercy. Paul would say this in Romans Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In Galatians, uh, Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, he refers to the law as our guardian. Our guardian until our guardian until Christ appeared. And then once Jesus has come, we no longer need that guardian. He fulfilled the law. And now we look to the unmerited favor or the grace of God. 
And, you know, you think about the law, 600 and uh, I think 13 uh, do's and don'ts that they were required to follow. And if you broke one, you broke the whole thing. And I'm thinking, man, we can't even keep, uh, we can't even keep the love God with everything we have. I mean, we failed there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, Jesus taught your neighbor isn't your, your buddy, your chum. Your neighbor is that person who you may not have absolutely anything in common with. Love that person. We, we, we as humanity, we fail in, in the JV team of spirituality. We can't even keep the Big Ten. And Peter wants to say, it's, it's not about keeping the law. It's about the grace that is poured out from Jesus Christ to every person, to every person. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Everyone from the richest to the poorest, from the most popular to the unpopular Grace is available to everyone, no matter what. In verse 12, Luke writes that um, the whole assembly became quiet. They're listening to what Peter has to say. Maybe they're frustrated with his words. Maybe they're in agreement with his words. Paul and Barnabas get up and they begin to share what God has done through them, how the Gentiles are coming to faith. That God is on the move through signs and wonders. People are repenting. Churches are being established. He's confirming their words with power. And so the power goes beyond words. And then, and then James would stand up. James, one of the pillars of the church, the brother of Jesus. We know in in, uh, Corinthians, Paul would write that Jesus visited James personally. He was called James the Just because of his piety, because of the way he followed and pressed in to God and the gospel. History tells us that at the time of James' death, that his knees were so calloused from praying that they reminded people of the knees of a camel. He was on his knees in prayer, so much so that they were calloused and they looked like a camel. So he stands up, and, and, I, and if things were quiet before, I could imagine that there was a hush that came over everyone because here he is, James pillar of the church. And I wonder if, if the, the, the Pharisees are thinking, all right, here comes Jimmy. He's going to set everybody straight. Peter's going to get spanked. Paul Barnabas is going to get spanked. And then James starts out by quoting the prophet Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. He is confirming the words of Peter. He is confirming the work of Paul and Barnabas. See, 
the acceptance of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God has always been God's plan. It wasn't something he just came up with. Well, you know, we're running out of Jews. We better get some Gentiles in here. We have always been part of the plan. The Old Testament tells us that there's going to be uh, two groups of people in the kingdom of God. First, there will be Israel. Gathered around them will be us, the Gentiles. We will all share in the messianic blessings without having to convert to Judaism. And so after he presents the words of Amos the prophets, he gets to the heart of the matter. James says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals and blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So James is giving advice to both groups, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. First, he tells the Jews, listen, lay off, lay, lay, lay off them. Don't make it hard for them to come to God. Don't make things difficult. Don't put uh, hurdles in front of them and make them jump through the hoops. And then he tells the Gentiles, stay away from worshiping idols. Avoid sexual immorality and don't eat meat that is, that is strangled or has blood in it. No idolatry because the Gentile, um, Gentile uh, nations or communities were all about worshiping many gods. They wanted to cover all their bases. And James says there's, there's only one true God to be worshiped, and that is the God, the, the father of Jesus Christ, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nothing else is to be worshiped because if you worship anything but him, then it's idolatry, and you are actually worshiping the devil. This is uh, abstain from sexual immorality. It was to be avoided because it was immoral. And it was running rampant throughout the, the Gentile communities. There was systematic immorality put in place in, in the form of other religions. And then the third is don't eat meat that's been strangled. Don't eat meat that still has blood in it. And when he gets to the point where he says, for the law of Moses is preached in every city, what he's saying is, listen, there are communities of Jews in every city. And you Gentiles would do well if you did not do things that just openly antagonize them. And so, for the sake of the gospel, just don't, don't do it. Don't offend them. And these two principles that James lays out, are for us, the church, today. What he's giving is, he is giving the truths of how we enter into and live out uh, what Eugene Peterson would call the unforced rhythms of grace. And the first principle that I believe that he's presenting to us is one that many of us Christians miss, many churches miss. And in turn, we begin to kill off the grace of God. See, the first one is that those who are under grace, we don't get to put any extra biblical requirements onto people in order for them to believe that they have salvation in Jesus Christ. 
We do not get to put extra biblical requirements on people and tell them that's the way you get saved. In James's day, it would be the Jews telling the Gentiles, you have to live like we live. You have to live as a Jew. You have to live under the law of Moses. In the church today, we don't get to make our own lifestyle gospel when the scripture doesn't support specifically the things that we are talking about. Examples, uh, how we dress, how we run the church, personal tastes in, in music, Many people will only listen to Christian music, and and that's awesome. Um, I would argue that there's no such thing as Christian music. A Christian is a person who has made a commitment to Jesus Christ. There is music that sings about God. There is music that the lyrics reflect a worshipful attitude towards God. But just because something is called Christian doesn't necessarily make it godly. And just because something doesn't have the label of Christian doesn't mean it doesn't glorify God. Movie preferences. No rated R movies. If that's your conviction, that's awesome. But if God hasn't spelled that out in the scripture, it's a personal preference. Personal convictions. When we put our personal convictions onto other believers, and if they don't follow it, and we call that sin, we are the sinners. We are in danger of sinning. I think one of the the big ones in the church is the consumption of alcohol. I'm not talking about going out and getting drunk. I'm not talking about closing the bar, staggering to your car, calling Uber now because it makes it much easier to go out and get drunk. But I'm talking about a beer or a glass of wine. If the Lord has convicted you to abstain from alcohol, I personally believe that is awesome. That is awesome. But to put that onto someone else and call that sin, you are the one that's entering into sin. Again, I'm not talking about drunkenness. The Bible's clear about drunkenness. Do not get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And you look it through the Proverbs, and it talks about things like that. Another thing I think that the church does really poorly in is when when people smoke cigarettes. Listen, I'm all for cigarettes are really, really bad for you. The research is in. But many will take this stance of if a Christian smokes, they're in sin because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is scripture and I totally agree with. But if that's your argument about not smoking then you are in sin if you go to McDonald's. You are in sin if you don't exercise. You are, could be in sin if you don't eat organic or raw. And so we have to be very careful about taking our own personal convictions and projecting them onto brothers and sisters, telling them that if you don't live the way I'm living, then you are in sin. It's a dangerous place to be. And that's what James is getting at. To put something extra on the life of a brother or sister and tell them that you are not living up to what the scripture teaches. 
It's way too easy for us to push our personal preferences onto other people. We try to make them into our own image. And we we, we come to this place of saying, well, either they're going to follow the way I follow Jesus, or they're in sin, or at the very least, they're just unspiritual. They're worldly Christians. And somehow they're missing it. They need to make these changes before they are going to measure up. An attitude like that is not only bad for us, for our own soul, but it has a detrimental effect on the church. Extra biblical rules and restrictions take their toll on the proclamation of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. See, grace is for all of those who call on the name of the Lord. The world is dying. I mean, literally, if you watch any of the news, the world is falling apart morally, uh, philosophically, spiritually. It's falling apart. And we have the only message that can bring life. And this is the message we should bring, not our own personal message of how we think people are going to measure up, but the message of of grace. You know, um, I find it interesting that sinners, who the religious elite called sinners, they were the ones that followed Jesus. Jesus the people who didn't have it together, the people who failed miserably in their spiritual walk, the people that the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees would have nothing to do with, those were the people that were attracted to Jesus. And I think the, the flip side of the principle that James is talking about grace is, is this. Because we are under grace... We gladly, joyfully restrict our freedoms for the sake of other brothers and sisters of the faith. If having a glass of wine with some people you know is going to offend a brother or a sister, stop it. You don't use your freedom to cause a brother or sister to stumble or you're the one in sin. Our freedom is is not to be used to trample the convictions of others. You don't get to preach, hey, well, you know, it's okay for me, and I maybe you just keep your conviction to yourself. No. Out of love, out of joy, I'm going to limit the freedom I believe I have in Christ so that I can build up and encourage a brother or sister and not tear them down. Paul would say it this way. Though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Just because 
we have the freedom in grace to do something doesn't mean that you should do it. We look out for the good of others. We don't get to cause the brothers and sisters to stumble over something as stupid as, say, a glass of wine, as seeing that movie, as listening to that music. Because if we cause the others to stumble, then we are the ones in sin. The next bunch of verses talk about how they take this letter, or they take these, these principles that James has talked about, and they write the letter, and they send it back with Paul and Barnabas. The Gentiles do not have to come under the law of Moses. They do not have to be circumcised. Grace has won the day. The grace of God will continue to be poured out to the world. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We must preach and teach. It's grace. Jesus plus nothing. And you know, I find that... um, Grace can be a very risky thing. It always has been and will continue to be abused in the church as license to sin. But you know what? We still preach grace. And we must tolerate nothing else. I'm not talking about tolerating sin. Jesus pointed out sin. Jesus' message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus did not embrace sin. He called it out. But those sinners, in the way that Jesus interacted with them, those sinners followed him. Those sinners repented. They didn't walk away until he told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But that's a whole other theological issue. Jesus had a way about him where the grace of God was upon him. And he was able to point out sin in someone's life. And they didn't shrug him off. They didn't walk away angry like, who does he think he is? Son of God. But they came to a place of repenting. Because of the grace of God. We have all received grace in place of the grace that's been freely given. And we cannot outgrace God. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Again, I'm not talking about condoning sin. I'm not talking about what the Bible says is sinful, is sinful, period, exclamation point. I'm not talking about the practice, the habitual sinning of, of someone. But I'm talking about being image bearers 
of God's grace to the world. We cannot outgrace God. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And so, Father, I pray that we will consistently be images of your grace and your love to a dying world. That we would share the gospel message and that people would come and repent and look to you for their salvation, look to you for their strength, look to you to be put back together in wholeness, to be healed from the, the, the devastating effect that sin has in people's lives. And so, Lord, give your church an extra measure of it. Let our words carry the authority of the Holy Spirit. Let our minds carry the thoughts of you, our Father. And let our hearts break for those who are perishing each and every day. We love you and we praise you. We gather in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Actually, wait, wait. I won't see you next week. Um, I'm doing a wedding next Saturday night for uh, Matt and Karen. (laughs) Um, But a very good friend of mine, Pastor uh, Howard Ranker, uh, just retired from ministry over 40 years. Actually, he is the pastor who planted Cornerstone Church in in Cheshire. 20-something years ago, a great guy. Uh, I would encourage you to come out and hear what he has to say to the church. So uh, I won't see you next week. At this time, I probably be will having eggs and toast with my wife on the deck uh, because it's going to be chilly. And so uh, we'll see you when I see you. Love you. <laughs>